Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, when the then British Prime Minister Theresa May said there was no magic money tree, she was wrong. There is. But you still have to look after it. I mean, if you picked all the money off the tree, then there's no money until you grow some more. So you can't pick it faster than it grows, just like apple trees can't supply unlimited quantities of apples. So the question is, how quickly can the money on the magic money tree grow? What is the optimum growth for the money supply? Because we certainly seem to have stuffed it up lately. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. So, Steve, what actually determines the ideal growth in a uh, supply of money? Because uh, I'm going to assume over a period of time, it's going to be growth in the economy, isn't it? Because if, if, if the money supply is expanding faster than the economy is, then at some point you're going to find that there's more money there chasing fewer things, and that's going to be inflationary. Is that? I mean, that would be a conventional way of looking at it, but is that the way you see it as well? Yeah, with, with a couple of twists. I mean, it, it, it is... Um uh, you have to say what state is the economy in at a particular time. Yeah, uh, you know uh, exactly. So over a period of time, yeah. so absolutely, you would not want to say, well, okay, the economy is is facing a downturn, therefore GDP is falling, therefore we shouldn't be expanding the money supply. But if you took it over a period of time, allowing for the ups and downs. Yeah, I mean, it's always going to be a cyclical system. This is one thing which uh, I don't think enough economists, even on the non-orthodox side, fully appreciate. Uh, there's still this. Uh, subservience to the concept of equilibrium is somewhere the market or the economy will end up in. And I've heard some uh, you know, some non-orthodox uh, speakers argue that, for example, as extreme a statement as saying that if there was no government, there'd be no unemployment because the market would reach equilibrium. That is just the sign of being taught too much by neoclassical economists, not getting your head out of there. Out, out of their their mindset, but so you're going to have a cyclical system no matter what. This is again, if you look at the work of Koleski, who was the first uh, truly uh, capable person in doing dynamic modelling and economics because he came from an engineering background. Uh, his systems were always cyclical, and then the question is, how do you restrain the cycles uh, within limits that? are socially acceptable and you don't want to have you know, 15% unemployment or, or 15% plus inflation um, and but you know you know that you know that with with time lags with even without time lags you will get uh, cyclical behavior out of a system so you first of all get your head, head around you're not going to reach uh, you, you you may make the deviations from equilibrium less extreme, but you're not going to make you're not going to make the system reach equilibrium and stay there. Mm. So that's that's one overall right. overall context. So, for by it. the way, uh, you are very well behaved today because uh, when you said they're getting their head out of there, and then you said the head out of their mindset, I could have been certain you were going to say that. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I managed to avoid the obvious <laughs> orifice I was thinking of. Yeah. So okay, so allowing for the fact that uh, you know there's ups and downs. Um, is there a sort of like an optimum then? If you looked over a period of time, is it, yeah. Well, the, the, should it, how much yeah, should, the, should the it be just a bit optimum, more than, a, than yeah. GDP growth? Yeah. Well, it, this is this is. Uh, I mean, if you do the absolutely simplest way of relating GDP growth to money supply growth, um, 
then you will have you end up with a wonderful concept of the velocity of money. Now, I know this is one thing with a lot of uh, uh, non-orthodox economists, post Keynes in particular, uh, you know, have other problems with the orifice at the other end of their body uh, when they hear people talking about velocity of money because it evokes the ghost of Milton Friedman, and most of us reckon the ghost of Milton Friedman should be taken back and buried again. Um, so, so it, it it is a problematic issue. Uh, for them to, to, for us to get our heads around. But fundamentally, there's the basic idea that there has to be some overall um, bound set uh, between the two. When you take a growing, growing economy for granted, and again, let's put ourselves in ecological foundations, we may actually want a declining, we do, frankly, want declining GDP until such time as we pull uh, humanity's load on the planet down to a level where it's it's sustainable for the biosphere. But yeah, you know, I've got to, I've got right. to work in the general. But let's public. let's push let's push. We can we yeah, put that, we can, put that, we can, put that let's aside. Push that aside. Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. therefore your basic relationship comes down to the how does the velocity of money and the rate of ch- change of money relate to it uh, relate to the rate of change of GDP and. Uh, I, I, I won't hit the, I'll, I'll put the nuances in later, but the basic idea, if your money supply turns over twice a year, then you want your money growth to be uh, about half that of your GDP growth. So if you're having a 5% rate of growth in, in nominal GDP, and let's say it's 3%, um, um, 3% coming. Well, let's, well let's, simpl- let's, let's simplify and we'll yeah. throw in the velocity of money in just a second. Let's assume the velocity of money stays constant. How much would your money supply need to change in relation to GDP? Is it is it just a little bit more? A little bit less, okay? Because the money supply turns right. over twice a year. I mean, if you imagine you got the standard velocity of money we used to have before uh, the nineteen sixties, before the nineteen seventies, and inflationary experience, and the deflation we've seen since then. If you go back then and look at the American. Uh, money supply in terms of the velocity of money, how often does the money supply turn over per year, uh, then it was about 1.8 times, which is roughly two. So if you can say, well, if you want, if your, if your rate of, uh, of, of GDP is growing at 5% per annum, so you've got, let's say, a 3% real growth and 2% nominal, so we're again talking all these sort of you know, Goldilocks figures for a, for a capitalist economy, uh, then you'd want your money supply to grow at about about half that because the money you put into the system grows twice as uh, turns over twice a year rather than once a year. So that's your basic relationship. And that, that, that then comes down to how, where is that money coming from? Is it coming from the private sector or the government? Uh, the, the safe... Yeah, uh, you, and, and, bef- and before yeah. we look at and before we look yeah. at that, because that yeah. would sort of like is my next question actually. But uh, but I think that we can also throw an, another velocity question into it. But you want them to be even then, so you want the amount of money that's changing hands in effect to equal GDP. But can you influence that GDP? Can you say, well, okay, if we if we put a bit more money in, we are going to help the, the the economy grow, and and you know the the, the magic money tree. Is something we can use then. If we say, well, okay, that we're, we're going to we're going to have the the government's going to spend a bit more, uh, and that's going to create more jobs. That's going to help uh, GDP grow. That would kind of make sense. But is there a limit on the extent to which you can do that? Well, I mean, it, 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 this is where we start talking in, in terms of a, of a complex system. Yeah. Uh, with with you know, and and what is the role of money in that complex system? And probably the most important that you get down is is money a ceiling or is it a floor? And if you take a look at Milton Friedman's logic, what he's got is money as a floor. And that is that if you increase the money supply, you will increase the rate of nominal economic activity. 
uh, and he blames it all on the government, of course, and the government's sending too many helicopters, literally his example, flying mm. over the country, dropping these notes out of the helicopter and, and therefore causing inflation uh, by pushing the economy past its natural rate of unemployment, all these neoclassical concepts. Um, but the, the, the basic thing is he has that the money supply pushes up everything else. So to put it in terms of the... the, the um, the velocity of money equation, what it has money times its velocity of turnover equals the price level times times real transactions. Uh, MV equals PT. He used T rather than Y, which is the convention for most economists, but we'll stick with Milton's Milton's version. So what he then has, well, he said he, he, he spent most of his intellectual career trying to prove that velocity was constant. This is the main thing he actually did empirically. And I love the fact that uh, two of his ultimate acolytes, uh, Kittle and Prescott, came out with a very good piece of empirical work I've forgotten the actual date now, but it's sometime in the early 2000s, I think, or, or late, late 1990s, uh, where they showed that velocity was extremely volatile, so it doesn't stay constant. And in fact, when you look over time, it's gone from 1.8, roughly, uh, mm. in the 50s and 60s, to almost, I think it was 3, and it was almost 3.5 at the peak of the inflation in the... Um, in the 1970s, and then over the, then that, that stage, it's fallen down, and it's pretty. I think these days it's below one. Yeah. So we've got such a sclerotic um, monetary system in terms of people's desire to hang on to the money and not pass it on to the next person. The hot potato has become too cold. But I think it slowed um, right down, didn't it, during the pandemic? The last couple of years, it's yeah, uh, yeah. And it, 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 this is what this is what Kittle and Prescott found that it's pro-cyclical. So if you mm. have a boom, it'll accelerate. If you have a slump, it'll it'll go down. And so it's not a constant, but that's what he, that's the myth that he he wanted to get in because if you make the v in the equation m times v a constant, and if then you also as Milton did, let's assume a can opener. He assumed the transactions that the T section was set by uh, fundamentals of supply and demand. So you had you know profit maximizing firms determining supply in the context of the demand from utility maximizing households, and so T was taken out of the equation as well. So if you have T and and V taken out of the equation, then change in M is going to cause change in prices, which is therefore changing the money supply causes inflation. And he had the causation going from the money supply to the price level. Now, the, the critique that came back from the post-Keynesian economists, which of course the neoclassicals completely ignore, but of course the post-Keynesians are correct about in all this, came from Basil Moore when he wrote the paper The Endogenous Money Stock and back in 1979. And what Moore argued was that the money supply, uh, rather than the money supply driving the price level, effectively price level and transactions drive the money supply. And this is where you get the whole, this is the importance of the concept of endogenous money. Mm. So the money supply, the money supply increasing because of the velocity of money increasing? No, 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 no. That actual physical... Increasing physical transactions and the price level. Because when when Basil wrote, um, there was a, a concept which was very important in financing corporations called lines of credit, which you can fundamentally think about as a corporate credit card. But a a major thing that major corporations did was negotiate lines of credit with a large number of financial suppliers. You might, with a big company, a a company on the scale of what Tesla is today, uh, assuming they're borrowing money, uh, would negotiate lines of credit, which would give it like a a corporate credit card of, say, $100 billion. Mm. Uh, And that if you you don't use it, then you've got $100 billion of money creation capacity if you get surprises in the cost of your inputs um, 
uh, coming through. So if you have uh, sudden wage demands, as what we had back in the 60s and 70s, um, then the firms pay those wages, they negotiate the wage demands, they agree to them, and they then uh, pay them initially through the line of credit. So the, And that means an expansion of the money supplies caused by a renegotiation at the wage level. And the same thing applied with oil. So when oil prices quadrupled in 1973, that meant uh, corporations accessed their lines of credit and that expanded the money supply. But it was facilitating inflation yeah. as well, wasn't it? So we had money supply well, actually it, it, contributing it, to inflation it, there. Yeah. Well, what it, what it meant was that you you didn't have a constraint from the money supply. The mm. money supply, in that sense, was pushed up by the price level rather than the the, the money supply suppressing the price level, uh, or or it, so in, in that's why I say the the best way to think about how Friedman thought about it versus the real world is Friedman thought that money was a floor, and if you push the money supply up, then you pushed up prices as well. Uh, but in the in the real world, it's a ceiling, and if prices push up, then the ceiling rises above you. But to some extent, it can put constraints in. So if you can, if you have the the Bockler attitude, we're going to you know, cram on, you know, not not respond to um, demands for fiscal stimulus. This is the, the budget going, you know, going towards austerity, et cetera, et cetera. You're reducing the growth of the money supply, and that then causes causes constraints. But it's not. It's not a. It's it's not a, a pushing factor. It's a, you know, you, suddenly the money is not there and transactions can't go through. So you can suppress demand, um, but you're you're not you're not simulating the demand in the first instance in commodity markets. You can end up in simulating very easily in financial markets. Yeah, well, that example uh, you gave with, gets very with, messy, <laughs> and it is. I need to, and once again, you've complicated what I would hope it was going to be a simple question. But just going back to that Volcker example, I mean, he did mm-hmm. say, "Okay, I'm going to push up interest rates and keep on pushing them up until we get inflation tamed." And in that example where you gave, where companies were borrowing to pay more to to workers, they would be less able to do that if interest rates were high. They'd be less able to borrow yeah. quite so much money, and therefore it, it would contain uh, wages, which is. You know, which is, yeah, I'm it, sure it, central it, banks would say, it, it, well, Steve Keane, that is exactly what we're trying to do now. Thank you very much. A win for the monetarists. <laughs> Except that if the cost pressures are coming from, from as they are right now, from the supply chain breaking down, um, then there's you, nothing you can do with, with um, monetary policy to stop the rise in the increase of the cost of production. We're literally talking about the amount you're, uh, you're paying for your inputs uh, initially, uh, and the time it takes to go from inputs to outputs, if that time doubles, uh, and, and that's quite, when you look about the supply chain, you, know, you might go from having to wait, you know, say, eight weeks for the next vehicle off the production line to waiting 12 weeks, uh, then the cost of production has risen by that much as well. And that's what's happening right now with the supply chain breaking down, with you know, you know, taking much longer to get uh, shipping from one side of the Pacific to the other to unload those uh, those containers, the factories themselves don't have enough workers to produce the output, and that increases costs rather than reducing costs. Yeah. So all these, all the, but anyway, the, the, that that means that money, money. You, you, the, the general statement I'm saying is that money is a ceiling which the which the foundations can push up over time. Uh, but if you do try something as extreme as Vokler did then you can financially break corporations by increasing the cost of debt and then causing a credit crunch, which is what happened under Vauclin. 
Uh, but he got, you know, he'll say, yeah, yeah, but I got inflation under control. Um, you know, people lost their jobs. I mean, yeah, you know, but, but, great but a different, a, di- a different, a different form of inflation. What we're having now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I know, the, yeah. Completely. I, know, I think we've had that discussion. Yeah, you've got this is all mm-hmm. driven by supply. So you wonder what the hell are they doing? Uh, question we've asked many times. But getting back to that original question. You seem to be saying, you know, is there an optimum for for control? If you could control the money supply, and we could talk about how that might might happen, and we know obviously it either comes from uh, uh, from commercial banks or from government. Ultimately, they're they're the two drivers of uh, of how much money is in circulation. But if you were able to control that as a finely tuned instrument, Steve, uh, allowing for the amount of money that's actually in circulation, and obviously the speed at which the velocity of that money, you seem to be saying, well, it's got to be in balance with GDP. Uh, over over a GDP period of growth, time, yeah, yeah. growth, and, side, it, yeah. and roughly speaking, you, you use the velocity as your. So, you get, you, what, what would be ideal velocity? And again, looking at the situation we're in now, anything but ideal financial system. You've got to go back to the fifties and sixties when private debt was extremely low. Uh, uh, you know, the, the lowest was the in America was literally uh, the end of the great the Second World War was the lowest level of private debt GDP for some it's a very substantial time. Uh, so that, that, at that stage, people weren't thinking, I've got to hang on to my money so that I can pay my debt. Uh, now, when you, when you have that mentality in people's minds, they say, I've got to, I can't spend as quickly because I need to use this money uh, for paying my own personal debt. That is uh, effectively meaning a slowdown in the velocity of circulation of money. And what that does is your your personal attempt to hang on to more money to repay your own personal debts reduces GDP, reduces economic activity. So you don't want that situation, but that's where we've really been since the early, pretty much the early 70s right through through to now. So take us back to the 50s and 60s, private debt level of about 50% of GDP. The turnover money was roughly... 1.8 times per year, let's call it two. Uh, And if you had a rate of economic growth of 3% in real terms and 2% in inflation on top of that, or say 3% and 3%, uh, then you would want a... you would want a 3% rate of growth of the money supply to accommodate that 6% per year expansion in economic activity in nominal terms. Now, wouldn't the money, the MMT, as the modern monetary theorists say, well, actually, it should be, it can be just a bit more than that. Because if there's a bit more than that, and it's coming out of government spending, that government spending is therefore helping the economy to grow. So we, you know, because what you're talking about is trying to make things level out. Uh, wouldn't wouldn't MMTers say well no if you spend just a little bit more and that was sort of the question I was trying to get to how much more would you spend if you were saying well okay let's try and push growth that little bit further through government spending for example well, if, 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 you, if, if we're still talking in terms as if the only increase in the money supply comes from the government sector, which is not true. But let's say what, 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 what I'd be trying to do is to achieve a stable level of private debt to GDP. So I don't want people uh, you know, having an increasing level of private debt because uh, p- past uh, private debt at the order of 50 or 60 percent of GDP seems a sustainable level in the long term because that is people, corporations borrowing for working capital, borrowing for investment and and consumers borrowing for long-term consumption items like houses and cars as consumption items, not as speculative items, then that level of debt doesn't cause uh, the sort of... Breakdown of the, the use of money for transactions, and this, the, the, we talk about money having you know, three roles: a unit of account, a uh, a means of payment, 
and a store of value. And Keynes himself pointed out that it was crazy to use money as a store of value uh, because there's no actual utility for, for money independent of, of its role in transactions. And the, the real point is that if you focus too much upon a store of value, you slow down the rate at which transactions occur. And the fundamental role is, is the transactional role. So you, uh, from what I've seen, looking historically, using America as the example, something of the order of 50 to 70% of GDP as a private debt level is safe within those borders. We're now at 1.5 to 2.5 times GDP in terms of the debt level, and that has completely kiboshed the, um, the whole relationship between money and velocity and, and, and consumer prices and you know, et cetera, et cetera. So back back to that, to make, make a, a target of no more than 70% of GDP at private debt level. Uh, understand that the government running, creating money by running a deficit uh, is, is, is what should happen because the, you want the money supply to expand over time. So you want that to grow uh, in a way which is compatible with the rate of growth you want for the economy as a whole, uh, then you want a government deficit of about 3% of GDP as your tar- as your median target. You're going to be above that when you want to stimulate the economy and below it when you want to reduce demand. But you do not ever, not, not hardly ever, are you, it, the circumstances in which you'd go for a, a government surplus are vanishingly rare. So uh, what about the period we've just been through then? Because the money supply uh has increased so much over the last couple of years. So in the UK, it's gone from two and a half trillion to three trillion pounds in just those two years of, of, of the pandemic. So is that in any way, I know that the inflation issue that we're seeing right now is because it's supply driven, but could it in part also be the fact that it, there is so much money now, which is uh, which is there? So it, it, And certainly, you know, a lot of it's gone into savings as well. So people's ability to consume has increased some, particularly the, the the richer end of society, their ability to consume has increased so much. Yeah, we've got a combination of, of it, it isn't just the supply, it is also like, you know, you had deficits of the order of 20% of GDP, which was necessary in the circumstances mm. of the breakdown of the private the private uh, exchange system. If we hadn't had that, and we had the, the way that uh, the COVID hit, and we've, we've totally mangled it. I mean, I've, I see people talking about this being a plan. Jesus, give me a break. Uh, this is this is this is planning. It's like you know, planning planning to paint your car by driving into a paint factory at 150 kilometres an hour. It, I just laugh at the thought of some conspiracy theory types I've seen talking about this being a plan. Bloody oath! But uh, but yeah, it's the new world order, Steve. That's yeah, what it's no, all yeah, about. Yeah. This was the world uh, economic you know. forum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, the. That in those circumstances, then you you have to accommodate for the fact that when there's a collapse in the private uh, transactional system uh, for something like COVID, your government is the only means that enables people to create the money that enables them to meet their financial commitments and and buy what they can buy in those circumstances. See, this is a huge increase over the the level, but that I'm talking about as a sort of stable uh, a stable growth path, a sort of golden age growth path. Use. Joan Robinson's term, uh, then you would you would you, you're going to have it, it, there'll be time lag now because you've massively pumped up the buffers that people have and money. Uh, um, you know the twenty five percent of GDP deficit becomes a twenty five percent of GDP surplus for the private sector. So suddenly they've got this huge increase in their money stock, and yes, they have spent that uh, part of it 
it, it has accelerated spending. So you would want to want to cut back uh, to some degree. You're not going to run a 25% of GDP deficit every year. Um, this actually raises an interesting point as well with a, a fight with. Um, between some MMTers and Richard Dennis from the Australia Institute on Twitter just recently. Mm. And uh, did you see that at all? No, but I'm a big fan of Richard Dennis. Mm. I always love his writing. Yeah, he's a good, he's a good bloke. Mm. He's a good bloke mm. and a good thinker. But he's not hes not somebody strictly from the MMT camp. And he was criticised by some MMTers for saying, you know, you want to, if you're going to increase government spending, you're going to want to, uh, you know, pay for it by taxing the rich. It's in, oh, you don't fund it by paying for taxing the rich. The point that I wrote back to, to Richard on this front was that uh, if you think about an economy where you have too little in the way of public services, and that's pretty much every country in the world these days because of 30, 40 years of neoclassically driven austerity and uh, and, and you know, restraint on government spending as if it's important to keep the budget you know, at, at zero, it should be close to the... To the that, you know, it's the rate of growth of the economy that determines your median level, not not some mm. fanciful idea of, of zero. De- but anyway, if you think you want to expand the level of social services, then you are going to, if you, you increase government spending, you are also going to have to re- increase government taxation because it's the difference between the two that tells you how much money is being created by the, by the government. So if you want to go from, say, where spending is 25% of GDP, and I'm going to be outlandish here for the sake of example, to 50% of GDP, then if you don't change your taxation level when you increase that spending, you're going to go from having a you know, your deficit being 3% of GDP and therefore you're creating 3% increase in the money supply to 20, 28%. And yes, of course, you're going to want to increase taxation. It's mm. not to... Um, yeah, so the, you want it's not you're not you're not increasing tax. Two. You're increasing tax though to try and change behaviour on you, rather than saying, well, okay, we we need that cash. I mean, I wonder whether that's the point Richard Dennis was trying to make that actually if oh, we, we tax the rich because yeah, we Richard want. To, was we, right we, we, in terms of MMT. That's what I'm saying. The MMT has criticised him, but when yeah. you think about it properly, it's the gap between spending and taxation that determines the government money creation. So if you have a substantial expansion in spending, you will also need an expansion yeah. in taxation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, or to put. Put it simply another way, if, if consumption is very high amongst the rich, you actually want them to consume less. And the way you can do that is through taxation. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, that, that is the difference, isn't it? Whereas, you know, the monetarists will say, well, we, you know, it's the supply of money uh, that we, we control with interest rates. The MMTers are saying, well, no, let's do it with tax. I mean, that is part of their platform, isn't it? Because uh, if, you, if you tax more... I mean, money is coming out of the private sector when you do that. You also have, um, you also have the, but you can't. You, you also have the capacity to use government bond sales to the private, to the non-bank financial mm. sector, uh, not non-bank public, to reduce money supply. This is what was actually done during the Second World War. The bonds, the war bonds, the people thought at the time were actually financing the government's war effort were in fact taking spending out of the private sector and putting it into the military industrial complex that was necessary for fighting World War Two. So it's, it's getting a correct perspective on taxation. But at the same time, if you increase government spending for reasons of saying it's too low, then you're also obliged to increase taxation as well. So uh, we, are, we are where we are. And we've got this situation now where there's lots of money saved, uh, particularly for wealthy people. So, for example, mm. uh, the OECD uh, reckoned that in Europe, 21% of high-income earners intend to save more right now. This is May 22. Uh, the, these figures are from, compared to 11% in December 2019. Well, of course, they're going to save more because they are sitting more comfortably. But even low-income earners 
Uh, 11% uh, now are saying they want to save more compared to just 1% back in December 2019. So this big scare we've been through has had a double whammy when it comes to savings in that everybody wants to save more, presumably because they want to buffer themselves against their future hazards, which they can probably see coming just around the corner. Uh, But also a lot of them have already saved because they got more money than they needed during during the pandemic, thanks to government handouts, which, you know, good good or bad, there's probably too many of them, but with that, they were necessary, as you said, to keep the economy going. So there's all this money swilling around, uh, which is adding to, to inflation. So what do we do? And do we try and grab that back somehow? Do we want to, we want to disincentivize savings, don't we? We don't want, that's the last thing we want people to do, but we do want them to spend the money they've got. Well, this this, <laughs> this this is the whole issue. What is savings at the, at the macroeconomic level? And, mm. and I think I've, I argued in my little cartoon book on that, the uh, funny money, yeah. that I, I would rather abolish the term savings from macroeconomics because individuals can save uh, and have more money in their bank account. But to change the aggregate amount of money in the bank account, you've either got to have borrowing from the private banks, running a trade surplus, or government spending in excess of taxation. Because uh, the, the, the only thing, the, if you don't have any change in the money supply and people in the aggregate try to save money, what they're doing is slowing down the velocity of circulation and they will reduce their incomes uh, collectively rather than increasing their savings. And this, this is the, the, the widow's cruise point that Keynes made in the opposite direction. Uh, but when, when sa- saving in that sense, individuals trying to save, actually simply reduces the rate at which money turns over and therefore it hits income rather than increasing But savings. if it's slowing down the amount of money in circulation, maybe that is, I mean, even though it's very low now, uh, given inflation is so high and we've got this, it's, it's harder to make the big moves to try and change the total money supply, isn't actually slowing the money supply down going to be a positive step forward while we while we try and man- manoeuvre our way through this high inflation period. <laughs> it's, a, it's a messy, bloody world we live in, so there might be mm. simple solutions. It's complicated. Yeah. Extremely. Okay. But a, a large part of the complication, first of all, the level of private debt is far too high, so therefore the velocity of money is slow for that reason alone. If we had, And the reason it didn't many supply reason is not only, but it's been encouraged by governments trying to run surpluses, which has reduced the growth of the money supply and pushed the private private non-banking sector into negative equity uh, in terms of their financial claims on the rest of the world, which has inspired them to go and buy non-financial assets like shares and housing, driving up the prices and therefore getting a notional boost in their in their net worth out of inflating asset markets. So we've got a huge mess from that situation. Um, what we've done now is say this large injection of money into the economy from the stimulus that was required during the pandemic early stages of the pandemic would by no means be out of it. Um, so that that money is now encouraging spending while people have actually increased their private debt level because we've had yet more speculation on asset markets. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's this, this sounds like sitting down and trying to give a forensic examination of a dog's breakfast. <laughs> and it's just, and it, I mean, you made the Which point. Which you just donated to your kitchen floor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just made the point as well. It isn't over, is it? And yet that, that there is almost that, no, not, that, that not assumption. Not a long shot. So governments now are trying to uh, sort of, you know, pay money pay money back in, in effect and uh, laying off people. So, for example, the latest payrolls data for the, for the United States just on, on Friday uh, there's 381,000 extra people working in the private sector from the month before, 380,000 extra in a month, 6 million extra over a year. So jobs are booming in the private sector. 
government jobs, uh, 9,000 less in a month, 200,000 less in a year. Uh, that is, you know, federal mm. and state education, postal service, the works. So the governments are trying to claw back money, reducing costs as much as possible, while the private sector is still employing people. And that's why, obviously, the Federal Reserve and other central banks around the world are saying, oh, how do we tackle that? I mean, obviously, I haven't got a clue. How do we tackle this? Because we've got this inflation, mm. people have got money, and uh, and companies are employing more and more people as though these are great times. But prices are going scarily high. They haven't got a clue how to tackle any of this. No, it, it, it's, you know, it's, there's so many myths getting in the way of how they do it. So first of all, seeing money as the floor that pushes up the whole system, so controlling the money supply controls everything. It's a ceiling, and it will it can cause constraints on growth and the turnover of of, 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 of uh, the private sector economy. But um, if you don't give enough money supply for people through the government, then they will borrow from the private uh, financial sector, from banking, and that tends to end up as money used for speculation rather than money used for actual real investment or, or, or even real consumption. So that's one of the many problems we have ourselves in. The, 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 over, like the overall conclusion to this, uh, the question is that you relate the rate of growth of the money supply to the rate of growth of the economy and come out with something of the order of a 3% of GDP target for money growth which you could do from private from the government sector alone, running a deficit of three percent of GDP, that becomes your target for a, you know, a, a, say a nominal six percent rate of growth um, with a money with a money velocity of two. That's roughly a rough uh, rule of thumb as where where to target. But we're trying to do <laughs> that's what you do when you're on car motions, and we're currently in the middle of the uh, you know the, a, a force five cyclone and your behaviors are going to be rather different and the consequences are very different but you don't want to you know turn you in the middle of a cyclone you're out in at, at sea you don't want to turn your sail the wrong way do you so mm. uh, so government saying well okay we're in this tricky situation we need to reel back our spending might be exactly the wrong thing to do man so for example in the uk they're busy looking for yet another prime minister who will almost certainly be worse than the last one looking at the uh, the field of candidates mm. and all of them of which there's many anyone who's ever been uh, you know a government minister or has aspirations to be seems to have thrown their hat in the ring rishi sunak is talking about strong fiscal management so in other words he's yeah, saying you know less money from the government but everyone else it seems is talking about tax cuts which might actually be the right thing to do in the UK right now, isn't it? Given that they are, you know, OECD is reckoning that they that they are going to stay, the economy is going to stagnate, and it seems to be your point. Well, if the government doesn't spend the money, then people are just going to borrow it from the private sector, which is which is going to be a, a worse situation because it just adds to uh, to private sector debt. So actually, to get through this, actually tax cuts so there's more government money uh, going into into the private sector. It's the right thing to do right now, isn't it? Well, I'd actually go... I mean, when you look at the state of, of services in the UK and the state of income of the people at the bottom of the... Of the yeah, well, you actually, not, not tax cuts. Yeah, actually, yeah, just giving money to yes. those people so that they can get it's through. Governments, yeah. you, you've, got, you've got to provide more services. Government services aren't vital for the rich. I mean, this, this is just a little you know, class analysis, <laughs> which should be, should be bleedingly obvious, but the rich don't need medical care because they can pay for it. Uh, they yeah. don't need... You know, I just recently watched that wonderful um, uh, movie about uh, Dunkirk and Winston Churchill. I've forgotten the American actor's role involved, but at one point he jumps out of his Rolls Royce and hops on the tube. And then when people are in shock, uh, Winston Churchill says, uh, what's the matter? Haven't you seen a prime minister on the tube before? Well, the answer is, of course not. Um, they, they, are, they are not the ones, the rich aren't the ones who are affected by cutback in public services. So you don't want to be doing this and, and, and leaving 
of you know the people place facing higher energy bills they can't meet, not being able to keep their houses warm at night. This this is the sort of state we're talking about for the bottom end of the income spectrum in the UK, and it's a large part of the bottom. So you don't want to get caught up in in tax cuts, which are only going to affect the rich, benefit the rich. It's this you want to boost the government spending and, and if anything maintain or increase the taxes on the rich. Um, as you you know pushing up that gap, pushing up the the level of government spending, which is necessary for the UK, then you've got to push the tax rate up at the same time. Uh, but of course, then we come down to the ineffectiveness of tax rates on people like is his name Richie, his name Sunak, yes, um, who's most of his wealth he couldn't tax himself because he most of his wealth, by the sounds of it, is held offshore. No, well, this is it's, well, yeah, and you know, and his and his wife is, you know, had that non-dom status, so they are all filthy rich. But uh, yes, I mean, she's one yeah. of the richest people on the planet. So okay, so we've seen just the final point then. So in the UK, we've seen the the money supply go from about two and a half trillion to three trillion in just a couple of years. The answer seems to be, well, we're not over this yet. So actually, uh, seeing it go further is not necessarily a bad thing, so long as it comes from the uh, public sector spending. But then those rich people who don't need it, who do have too much. We should be tax increasing tax for them because we want to change their behaviour. Because isn't that where the inflationary demand is largely coming from? It's not those people struggling to pay their energy bills. It's those people who are still demanding, you know, good stuff to make yeah, their life the, the, better. The, the, stim, the stimulus ended up going to the top end of the financial sector rather than the the, the income spectrum rather than the bottom. Uh, and this is uh, one of the reasons that the, you've got such cynicism about. Uh, the modern state from the majority of the populations because they're not the ones seeing the benefit. It really is, you know, wealth for cash for the mates has been a huge part of the increase in the money supply. Okay, very good. Uh, I, illuminating, but hell, it's complicated. I mean, it's um, more than ever, isn't it? As you say, this dog's breakfast uh, or the dog's breakfast that's been eaten and spat out. Uh, it's yeah. I mean, we we don't. F- I mean, I'm I'm sensing from what you're saying that even you don't fully understand it. This is a complicated model, and we really don't completely understand where we are right now or how we fix it because it is so complicated. Yeah, we've we've got this you know, a systemic uh, process of feedbacks in so many different directions, and most of those underlying feedbacks being in the opposite way to economic what it means for economic theory thinks it is that. Uh, yeah, building a realistic model of capitalism is still a pipe dream. Yeah. Hey, look, a conversation for another day. Thanks for all of that. A conversation for another day, which I do want to cover, is what is this doing for developing nations? So we had this whole situation in Sri Lanka oh, God. where inflation is yeah. over 50%, interest rates are 15 and a half. the rupee has fallen about 80% this year. And just think about all those other emerging nations that have got debt in US dollars and the US dollar is strengthening all the time. And they're struggling for food supplies, so the cost of food is going up. I mean, that is a dire situation that the the West is ignoring right now. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, a definite conversation for another day. Indeed. Anyway, I'll leave it there for now. Good to talk. I know you've got to get a plane to catch. Good to talk, Steve. Thanks for taking the time. Okay, mate. Bye. Off to Hungary for something which he hasn't already told you about. He will do soon. Uh, but if that all comes together, we might be changing this podcast a little bit in a good way uh, in coming months. Uh, so more on that fairly soon. That's it for today, though. I'm Phil Dobby with Steve Keen, back with another edition of Debunking Economics very soon. Thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. 
If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.